0: Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and the history of electrical engineering. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman.
1: And Stephen Craig. This is episode 390. So our guest this week is Kathy Joseph. Kathy splits her time between writing her new book, making documentary videos based on her books for her YouTube channel, Kathy Loves Physics, and giving talks about the history of science. Kathy holds multiple advanced degrees in physics and engineering, and she lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Thank you, Kathy, so much for joining us on the podcast.
2: Thanks for inviting me on.
0: So before we start, can you give our listeners a brief introduction about yourself and your background as a physicist and electrical engineer?
2: Well, actually, I'm not an electrical engineer. I'm just, I've become an electrical engineer historian by accident, if that makes any sense. I was a physics physicist multiple times because I kept on failing my PhD. And I also got a, so I got a, two masters in physics and then a master's in engineering science, which is basically mechanical engineering. I don't know why they called it engineering science, but that's what they called it. And then I became a high school teacher, which I got to say, I loved mostly. And also, I, I used to describe it like playing at a dive bar. Like when it's bad, there's beer bottles flying at your face and, you know, it's bad. But when you hit it, when you get it right, it's just there's something magical about touching a teenager's life and just the time when they suddenly go they have enough knowledge to be in trouble they have enough knowledge to learn to love science and if you get to be the part of that there's something magical about that and also there's nothing that teaches you more about what common misconceptions are as teaching high school because every week you give them a quiz and then you learn that you didn't teach them that radio waves are not sound waves. <laughs> I don't know why that one in particular. They just wouldn't believe me. I, it was really challenging. But I started to learn about the history of science just to make my lectures more interesting. I was having a conversation with a woman who's a lawyer, and we were talking about funny stories of teaching. And I'd said how I'd asked my students where electricity comes from, And they said, a plug in the wall. (laughs) Well, they actually said the wall. And I'm like, what do you mean the wall? And they're like, the plug in the wall. And they said, where's the plug get it from? And they're like, "Um, I don't know, the electricity store. like,
1: oh, no. The, The funny thing is that that's probably the answer for most people, actually, if you ask that, not just high school students.
2: Exactly. That's what occurred to me when I talked to this lady is that. She was saying that's funny, but she doesn't, I mean, she could mention, you know, solar panel and coal power and hydroelectric dams, but she didn't have any idea how they worked. It was just a black box. It magically, you dam a river and then you get electricity. And then she said something like she was too dumb to understand it. And this was a, you know, professional lawyer, very smart, and it just killed me that the way we educate people tends to leave the majority of people with no basic scientific literacy. It just kills me. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll try to write a book about how electricity works. I was thinking to help people like that. And I thought, well, I'll just teach, go through the history so I get to learn the history. And then I started my podcast and I realized that Most of my followers on the podcast are engineers and physicists and professors. So I don't skimp on the depth, but I don't skimp on the fun stories. And most of the time, most people either do one or the other. They're like, this is a cool story. And we don't want to tell you how a tank circuit works. And then we go on. I'm like, no, tell me. Come on, let's go through it. Let's go through the original papers. Let's see what they thought. How did they, you know, if you're measuring and you discover an x-ray, how did you power the x-ray machine? Why do you have an x-ray machine in the first place if you don't know about x-rays? These questions, I think, I was shocked by how often I developed so much deeper understanding of things by learning where they came from.
0: That's a good way to think about it, where the... It, like the whole thing with like, let's just say math equations. It's like, they it didn't just pop into existence. Someone thought about it and wrote it down or figured it out. So that whole process of figuring it out is something that I actually kind of agree that we don't really teach people that well.
1: It's funny because uh, this, this past weekend, my wife and I, we went out and watched Oppenheimer, it being a new movie. And uh, there's a point at which... They're at some university and they're showing the radiation lab and there's a large apparatus that's being built. And I don't remember what they exactly describe it as. It might have been an early cyclotron or something of that sort. But I remember it being in my seat being like, oh, I want to know about that. What is that machine? Like, how are they figuring out this stuff? Because they're talking about splitting uranium or or whatever they were doing at the moment. I was like, ah, oh, like, let's let's go a little further into that. So it sounds like that's what you're really trying to dig into is more of the nitty gritty of the history.
2: Yeah, I want to dig into the nitty gritty of the history from the original documents, but also incorporate the other stories. In general, I actually don't like reading biographies. I feel like they tend to have too much information. I feel like the person who writes them gathers everything they can find about that person and then they spit it back to you. I'm always looking for the weird, quirky things that display what their personality is or display why they fell in love with this part of science. And I feel like if you just include a few details, then it makes the person come alive and it makes their science come alive. But then you don't have to get bogged down in that, all the details of that one story. I've become sort of obsessed with, I feel like teaching science through its history at every level is so exciting and interesting and deep and meaningful. Surprisingly.
0: So we kind of glossed over it at the very beginning is, so what is your book's title?
2: Oh, it's called The Lightning Tamers, and it has a very long subtitle. It's something like, True Stories of the Dreamers and Schemers Who Conquered Electricity. And then, uh, Kathy, what, what's the name of your YouTube channel? Oh, Kathy Loves Physics.
1: And both the book and the YouTube channel kind of go together, right? They, there's, there's sort of a, a, a theme between the two.
2: Well, actually, what started was I started writing this book. And when I wrote the book, it quickly turned into a series of linked little stories. And it actually initially was sort of this Frankenstein monster. I just I just went wherever I felt like the story was going. I'm like, oh, lasers. Let's do the history of lasers. You know, let's do the history of radio. Let's do the history of cell phones, touchscreens, quantum mechanics. Why not? But also, by making these videos, they were based on, initially, they were based on the initial chapters of the book. So if you like, go to my book, and you go the first video I ever made, they're very similar. I found that putting it in visual form, especially because I felt like on YouTube, I needed some way to show I was valid. And so my way was, to include as many images of original documents as I could. And that Are you talking about like patents and like drawings and that kind of stuff. Patents and drawings, but also if you say someone said something, how do we know that? Well, it's usually in some story or sometimes it's in a, um, a obituary. Obituaries are awesome. I know that sounds ghoulish, but like obituaries are full of all these... <laughs> quirky, fun stories. And they also describe their science and how it was developed and how it was appreciated or hated or or what have you in a way that you, is, you can know is true, or at least pretty sure it's true. And it's amazing how much stuff is on. People have put up, I mean, often when someone famous dies, they'll publish their Letters, their diaries, their, I mean, Heinrich Hertz who discovered radio waves, his wife published his diary and it's like January 15th, nothing got done today. I can't figure out anything. I'm an idiot. January 16th. I still don't know anything. (laughs) My favorite was like December 31st. Glad this year is over. Hope next year is better. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> hurts my man. I get you. I feel you. I love you. And then, of course, he discovers radio right, Nothing has changed, right? Right. Nothing has changed. I don't know how much he edited it, but he was definitely like, I don't understand anything, and I'm messing it all up. And it's just like, ah, uh, it just you feel for them, and you you see what they're like as people. Because you can read their letters, and you can see how they interacted with other people. And it's so, it reminds you that these people aren't just dry names. They had, they were people. And some of them were delightful and some were rude and some were awful, frankly, but like they were just people. And that makes it so interesting to me.
0: It's comforting to know that Hertz has imposter syndrome.
2: (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) How do you go finding that information? I imagine most libraries don't have a, the Diary of Hertz, or maybe they do. I just
2: haven't been to a library in a long time. <laughs> you know what? I don't go to libraries often either. Almost everything I get is online. Usually, I start with Wikipedia. I love Wikipedia because it's full of dates and full of quotes and full of random factoids. And then I use those to get to the original. For example, I'm just finishing up a video on the shocking history and physics of the AC transformer. And I talk a lot about this guy named Lucine Gallard. And they said that Lucine Gallard was found wandering through Paris saying he was God and that God does not wait. And then he was taken away to an institution and then he died in December. So I look up Lucine Gallard, God does not wait, in Google Books. And I find an article from 1888 from an engineering magazine that's mentioning what happened to this man. And then I put in Lucine Gallard and the name of the institution where he died. And then, you know, out pops his death certificate. I mean, not his death certificate, but his death notice in a French paper. And then I'm like, okay, this happened or at least they thought it happened in 1888 and so that way i can say that happened with authority and almost every time i look at the original i find these old you know radio magazines or something it always gives me something new and interesting instead of quoting from someone who's quoting from someone you know down the line i get the original article and they often have more things that the other person missed didn't think was that important. That gives it real depth. So that's, I feel like a detective, you know, except I'm not trying to figure out who murdered somebody. So yeah, it's definitely detective work.
0: Do you go and like interview other historians maybe, or anything like that? Or are you just, you're just trying to go find the original documents and the
2: original quotes and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I almost never look at modern books, and I I definitely don't interview historians. I have yet to meet any science historians who are focused on teaching the science. I feel like because I went through so much physics, Fitch's education today is so impractical. I went through all of my schooling without learning how a generator worked, which is unbelievable to me, right? Mm -hmm. But- Now, when I go to the history of the generator, I know why these things are happening because I'm familiar with all these equations from different venues. And because I go through the history, I get more comfortable with the technology.
1: I love that. I have a short story that's in relation to this in my college right after my, I guess my freshman year, because you take physics one and then you take physics two. And then after that, they actually think that you're valuable uh, somewhat. And so then <laughs> they start putting you into other classes. Well, my third physics class, we all called it Star Trek class eh. because, because we were past like the basic physics and we started getting into quantum stuff. We started getting into a lot of the more, shall we say, weird stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because my professor at that time reminds me so much of you because he cared so much about the things that were not just the cold hard physics that there was one class that was dedicated entirely to the Michelson-Morley experiment, which which was the experiment which disproved the, the ether through which light had to propagate through the universe. And what was really fundamental about this lecture for me was that the professor made it clear that this wasn't going to be on the exam and that he was teaching this entire lecture because he cared about it and because he wanted us to care about it. And the funny thing is, I don't remember my my professor's name. I don't even remember the name of the class, but I remember him drawing this experiment up on the, on the blackboard and he explained the entire thing. And it, it wasn't there for... Our grade. It wasn't there for us to prove that we knew anything, but he thought that the history of a particular experiment and the two gentlemen who, you know, gave the experiment or or produced the experiment was important for us as people. And that was really impactful for me. And I hear a lot of that from you. So I'm curious, all of this to spawn this question, what are your thoughts on teaching the history
2: of electronics as part
1: of academia?
2: I think it should be at every level. So in... 1959, Richard Feynman was working at Caltech, and he was complaining about physics education. Just to be clear, we're talking about the Feynman, right? The Richard Feynman, who was a, sort of a, a quirky physicist who, he won a Nobel Prize, so it was, and this class, which was supposed to be for freshmen, they said, towards the end, it was mostly professors just pouring in because they really liked how he put it together. But he, when he got to Maxwell's equations, after waxing poetic about how it was the most beautiful thing, the most important thing, blah, 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 he says, if you want to know the history, we don't have time. So just look it up on an encyclopedia. And off we go. <laughs> and I was like, Richard, come on. And I feel like that's how we've taken it from then on, is that, oh, this is cool. But we'll do it on a side day. We'll do it as a side note. It won't be important. And in my mind, what's more important than knowing how we got here? And what's more important than knowing how physics and engineering changes and evolves over time? So many people think that if there's a new equation, that like their teacher was lying to them. And I'm like, no, it should change. If you went to school 30 years ago, it shouldn't be exactly the same now. (laughs) There's some things that we understand in a deeper way that we have a new understanding of. We have new depth to. We have new models. Something. Come on. That's good. And I feel like if you study it through its history, you can see how it evolves, how it changes. And it's so much easier to remember and to understand when you know the personalities behind it. You know, you remember that a step-up generator gives you more shocks. If you remember the Irish priest who made a shocking machine that gave him 3,600 shocks a minute by someone spinning this wheel and connecting and disconnecting a battery and how excited he was by having more coils on the outside. And he's like, I got tremendous shocks. And just this image of this very conservative-looking man who must have just been sitting there holding on to these things, getting shocked all the time. <laughs> you won't forget how a transformer works if you think about this priest, right? But you will if it's just given to you as cold, hard facts. And as a teacher, some of the biggest problems is getting your students to be interested. And you're trying to say, well, yeah, you know, electricity is important, so here's Ohm's equation. And everyone's like, Um, I know electricity is important, but I don't see the connection to that, right? Unless there was something passionate about, like your teacher, who was just so passionate about that story. And I don't know if he connected it to the development of um, relativity and equals mc squared. Oh, good. Yeah. Like, sorry, the Michelson-Morley interference experiment led directly to relativity and Maxwell's four equations. And the funny thing about that is this is an
1: entirely an experiment that just disproved right. something. It's not even an experiment that like showed something new. It just disproved what people were already thinking about and it's etched in my mind because of how that professor taught it.
2: Experiments that disprove things are as important as experiments that prove things. I think that whole thing of like the scientific method of you have an idea and you do an experiment and then you verify it. That's not how science develops. It's more like... Hey, let's try this on a sunny day. Hey, let's try it again for no reason. Hey, let's try it with a different film. Let's see what happens. I think this will happen. Oh, the opposite happened. Why? I've discovered something new. It's almost always like that. All these stories are so exciting and dramatic and strange and passionate. Scientists and engineers are artists. We're looking at the world and we're trying to make a model and we're trying to get other people to believe our model. And just like every kind of other artist, there's the extroverts, the introverts, the but every one of them is quirky as hell. (laughs) And I think if we think of ourselves as artists, we can understand the diversity of brains that can contribute and find our place in it much easier than thinking there's only one way to be a scientist and one way to be an engineer. And it's very stoic and, you know, unemotional and uninterested.
0: So I have got a question. What's the craziest experiment or discovery you've written about or like most obscure connection?
2: One of my favorites was this guy named Matthias Boza. He was a German scientist and self-described wizard. And he read an article in like 17- uh, Hold on. Yeah. He called himself a wizard? Yes. He said he was okay. a wizard and then would write poetry about himself. I love bad poetry because it doesn't take any skill to appreciate how bad it is. <laughs> and so like, that's my favorite thing. So anyway, he read about someone doing an experiment where they rubbed a glass tube and they made glass balls move around in a bowl of water. And he's like, I was dreaming of these glass tubes and read everything he could about electricity. And he's read about all these different things. And one of the things he read was that there was this sphere. Isaac Newton's assistant had done an experiment where he had spun a glass sphere and had it glow when his hand was on it. It was an early, like fluorescent light without the fluorescent coating and a plug. It had a little bit of mercury in it. When he spun it, it glowed purple. Matthias Boza reads about that, and Bo's like, I'm going to use this as a machine, and I'm going to do crazy experiments. One of his favorites was to ask an attractive woman to stand on a piece of wax. He called it pitch. She was called Venus Electrificatus. He would electrify her with the static electricity machine, and then he would give her a kiss. And then he wrote bad poetry about, like, You know, if you're offended, you can jump in the ocean. I kissed Venus on the quick. My lips quivered, my teeth almost broke. He's writing things like, I hope I die by electricity so my body can be useful for the French Academy to study electricity. All right, electrify silverware at the dinner table. And his most famous experiment was electrifying himself and then having a spark from his hand or most often a sword go-to a thing of uh, alcohol and light the alcohol on fire. And it was actually copying that experiment that this guy figured out that he just put a jar of alcohol up to a static electricity machine and it didn't light on fire. So he's like, huh, that's a shame. And then he touches the other end and he almost gets thrown across the room. It had stored the charge. And then (laughs) he's telling everyone do this and no one could figure out how it was working. And then another person tried it with salt water. And he told a guy named Muschenbrach, who was living in the town of Leyden. And Leyden writes his friend in France. And he says, i had done the most horrible experiment. I would never do it again for all the kingdom of France. I thought it was done for. And I realized that everything I know about electricity is wrong. And I'm, basically, I'm giving up. And the guy he sent this letter to was like, this is the best. I'm going to do this all the time. I'm going to electrify. (laughs) And he sold them as like toys. He called them laden jars. That's why capacitors are sometimes called laden jars. I just think the concept
0: of a toy just being something that just shocks you.
2: Oh, man. He would have like 200 monks in their outfits, habits, habits. And he would have them all shocked at once. And he says, it's really exciting to see how they all jump at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, my goodness. But they would do these amazing tableaus. Like the cover of my book, if you look at it, is this picture of this like, there's a, a woman rubbing one of these electricity machines There's a man spinning it and they're all dressed up in these fancy 1700s outfits. And there's a boy held up from the ceiling by silk, like tied up. And then he's a conduit to a young girl in a very fancy dress. And she's standing on a wooden box, having little pieces of fluff go to her hand. It's a really simple experiment that they made look the most extravagant over the top. I mean, like they really didn't need to tie this kid up. They could have had a a metal bar between them. But they wanted it to look completely over the top. And the guy who sold these jars, Abbé Nolet was his name. He had these beautiful books with all these crazy experiments. And the king of France was so enamored of him that he made him the king's son's tutor. It like helped him advance in the world by electrifying people.
1: Hmm. I'm wondering how many discoveries in physics and engineering actually came about due to like tricks and just having fun with it.
2: A lot of it. I, I think we have this idea of discovery as being very dry and focused when really mostly it's people having fun or people trying new experiments or people just being silly or people combining weird things or sometimes they want to prove one thing or disprove one thing. And it doesn't go the way they want. A bar bet. Yeah. So (laughs) I think that that's the other thing that people miss. They think that the history is cute, but not useful for current scientists and current engineers. But I think there's so much gold in them hills, so to speak.
1: How does that translate to today, though? You know, like the idea of electrifying a glass sphere and, you know... Shocking people for fun. that sounds antiquated. It doesn't necessarily apply, but but perhaps not, right?
2: The whole idea, I mean, like, how many times have people done giant Tesla coil demonstrations? Hmm. What's the point of that? The point of that is it's cool as hell, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, there's like yep. there's a person that wears chainmail and then like I've seen
2: it. it's
0: so cool uses a guitar and uses the arc as like the speaker. What's interesting about this is, it's giving context of how the discovery happened. And I think it's a good thing to know about because it helps you figure out stuff.
2: Hmm. And also we've become so isolated. I mean, I know people who study red lasers who don't talk a lot to people doing blue lasers. Like you just like <laughs> you just get so minutiae. I was just doing something about Emil Lenz and Lenz's Law of induction. He was studying like water systems. He just went around the world as a teenager looking at different water systems. And he did nothing with electricity. And then he reads Faraday and he's like, oh, this is great. I'm going to do this now. And now nobody can switch. Nobody can say, this is interesting. Let me study this for a while. It's amazing how often the unrelated things will, and that's how new discoveries are made often. You take something from a totally different field and you put it together with something that you're used to. So part of studying the history is you learn about so many different fields besides your own. For example, polarizing sheets, which we use for all our thin screen devices, right? That was developed by a guy named Edwin Land, who also did the polarizer camera. So he's going on vacation with his child and he takes a picture of her and she's like, daddy, I want to see the picture right now. And he's like, I don't know why you can't. <laughs> so he's, he's like, okay, I think we could just put chemicals in the paper and have something that'll take an instant picture. So they called it Land Cameras, cause that was his last name. But the name of the company was Polaroid Because they made polarizing sheets. So everyone started calling them Polaroid cameras. (laughs) They have nothing to do with polarizing sheets. Mm. (laughs) But anyway, his polarizing sheets came from an idea that was discovered like 120 years before him. They found that if you give this medicine to dogs and then study their urine, and I don't know how they collect dog urine, and I don't want to know, yuck, (laughs) the dog urine would make these crystals, and if the crystals were parallel, it would sort of shine through, and if they were perpendicular, they wouldn't. And they couldn't grow the crystals any bigger, so they gave up. And he was like, well, let's put it in plastic. That'll probably work. And that's how he developed polarizing sheets.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I think uh, perhaps academia kind of gets in a bit of a rut, and there's this concept that, you know, I leave high school, I'm, I'm age 18, I go to college and I need to pick my the rest of my life right. immediately, and I go and I study that, and by the time I'm in my third year and I hate my degree, it's too late, you need to continue and finish that because you can't switch, I can't, you know, I'm an electrical engineer, I can't go be an astronomer or whatnot. And this, this kind of idea of a renaissance man or renaissance person or whatever, of like being well-rounded or knowing all of these things. I don't know, does that really exist as much anymore or are we all just hyper-focused on what we need to know? What was coming to mind earlier is that I, for whatever reason, I was thinking of my father, you know, myself and my father, we spent both the exact same amount of time in college. He spent four years in college. I spent four years in college, but between the time he was in college and the time I was in college, I'm not going to say that I had to learn more, but there was a lot more to learn. Mm -hmm. Let's just put it, put it that way. But I was given the exact same amount of time to digest all of that. And so like this idea of learning all the history on top of all that I had to, it almost seems like college just needs to be longer. And I'm not even just saying college, but just education in general.
2: Well, possibly, but I was shocked to find that including the history makes teaching the science easier. I'll give you an example. Maxwell's equations. I did a video on the history and physics and math of Maxwell's equations. And I taught all four Maxwell's equations, where they came from, what they mean, what the divergence, the curl, all of that from basic concepts in 35, 40 minutes. One lecture. (laughs) And it had depth. Mm -hmm. And that's because it's so much easier to explain it When you start with the ideas behind it, rather, and the people behind it, it all makes so much more sense when it comes from something, rather than here's an electromagnet, here's the equation for electromagnet, and you're like, I've I've lost you. If it doesn't stick with you, if it has no context, it's actually so much harder to learn. It takes longer to learn it without the history, is my contention. Than to learn it with the history. I'm just thinking about, you know, Stephen was talking about his
0: college experience and cause we, we talked about this on the podcast before, but like an engineer has to go and take like English. And then uh, I actually had to take some philosophy classes at my school. I don't know if Stephen had to or not, but at the time I viewed those as like, well, this isn't engineering. Why does it matter? And it really took about a decade afterwards. And thinking about those classes again and what I learned it's more about like it's making you more what Steven said is well-rounded mm-hmm. and so you start thinking about problems in other disciplines that kind of where this history stuff is going where like for Maxwell on you know if electricity can influence a magnet and magnet can influence a magnets then electricity is a magnetism right mm-hmm. that's yeah. Magnus of electricity. So like that whole idea of his way of thinking and figuring that out and you just thinking about their process of thinking can influence how you are approaching problems.
2: Mm-hmm. It definitely can. And it's funny when you were saying that, I'm like, I know why you had to do that. Yeah. There's a guy named Charles Proteus Steinmetz who was like, every engineer has to take regular courses or they will not be well-rounded. They have to take the other courses. And he was so famous he kind of forced everyone. There used to be like electrical engineers could just take engineering courses. And I had this video about him. I love Simon. He's delightful. And I was like, so if you went to college and you took those classes and you liked it, you could thank him. And if you went to the college and you took those classes and you hate it, you can be mad at him. Because <laughs> <laughs> the amazing thing to me is everything in science comes from somebody We think of science as representing nature, but it represents someone's interpretation of nature.
1: Mm, That's really good.
2: And so we think of them as facts, but they're not facts. They're just how we understand it right now. And so when you come to anything, anything, why is it named a cathode? You can always go back to where it came from. Always. And it always has a reason. So doesn't cathode come from ancient greek cathodos or something like that i think so faraday had no education and no math skills and no connections and he became i say the most influential scientist that ever lived the because he invented the stuff that led to the generator the transformer uh maxwell's equations the idea that light is electromagnetic wave and the names of basically everything used in electricity ions electrode electrolyze cathode, anode, magnetic field, paramagnetic, dielectric, diamagnetic, all came from Faraday. All of it. And I'm like, if you want to know if someone's influential, did they come up with a name and did it stick? Then they're influential. But what he did was he had no language skills. So he contacted a friend who was a linguist and he said, this is what I'm trying to describe here. And his linguist friend says, okay, call him an ion. Call him a cation, call it this, call it that, call it that. So I think cathode stood for like from electricity or anode was, I can't remember how it worked. But he he asked a linguist friend because he he didn't know any Greek or Latin or, I mean, he wasn't. Well, he even has a a unit named after him too, on top of all of that. Yeah. Well, they were going to name current after him. They wanted to name current after Farad's. The English did. And then they kind of combined with the French and they said, no, let's change it to amps for Ampere. Who's his friend, actually? Luckily, Ampere spoke English as well as French in like 20 other languages. And I think the people at the time knew two things. One, they knew that Faraday had came up with the idea of dielectrics and how to measure the dielectric constant by putting an item in a capacitor. So, like, it made sense to name the capacitance after him. And second, he was a really shy, reserved guy who never wanted any accolades. And so, like, the thought of naming current after him seemed kind of weird because he wouldn't have liked that much attention.
0: He wanted a little bit of attention, but not that much attention.
2: No, he wanted no attention. He was very religious. And to him, being understanding nature was understanding God. So he's almost like a priest of science. He said it was like looking in the pocket of God. And it didn't reserve him in any way. He was very open to whatever he saw. But to him, everything he saw made him elevated. If he discovered something new about science, he was becoming closer to God almost. When he discovered magneto-electric induction, people wanted to give him money, Queen Victoria wanted to give him a nobility. He's like, nope, 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 nope. He was poorer after that than before. He refused everything. And he's like, please give me a plane funeral. He just didn't want anything. He wouldn't have wanted the Farad named after him. So Kathy, I think we're going
0: to uh, wrap up this podcast. I want to thank you so much for coming on our podcast and talking to our listeners about the history of engineering or electrical engineering, I should say
2: this was lots of fun. I love talking about, I love talking. So this is fun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So again, uh, what's your book's title?
2: So my name is Kathy Joseph. My title is the lightning tamers and my YouTube channel is Kathy loves physics. And my website is Kathy loves physics.
1: Well, Kathy, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it.
2: Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you so much.
1: And
0: that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dolman. And
1: Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.
0: Thank you, yes, you are a listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at Macrofab. Oh, it's not tweet anymore. It's X. X us. At macrofab oh. at Longhorn Eng- Yeah, yeah, Kathy. They they changed the name of the platform. <laughs> at Longhorn Engineer or at I wonder if they'll change the at too, maybe. At analog ENG oh, or I email. Snorting Podcast at macrofab.com. Also check
1: out our Slack channel. You can find it at macrofab.com where we discuss all our podcasts.